Good morning. And good morning to those who are here and those joining us online. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastoral staff here at the cathedral. Uh, and before we look into 2 Samuel 23 that we just read, let's open with a word of prayer. Come, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all praise and glory. Your steadfast love is great above the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. Help us to know who we are through your words today that we may rightly live for you and love you. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. I'd like to begin by reading some famous last words and see if you can guess who, who they're said by. The first, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality that it should have. The last words of Leonardo da Vinci. Next, I don't know what I may seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then in finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay undiscovered before me. The last words of Sir Isaac Newton. A shorter one, maybe a bit more modern. I'm losing. The last words of Frank Sinatra. One last one. A dying man can do nothing easy. Benjamin Franklin. In today's passage, we'll be looking at the last words of King David. Uh, we have been following through the story of David in 1 and 2 Samuel for close to three years now. And now we come to chapter 23, and next, uh, next week we'll end with chapter 24. But in this chapter, we look at David's last words. So let's look at verse 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. So firstly, we need to note, David's last words are not words of man, but words of God. They are an oracle. And he is reminded, we are reminded that he is the son of Jesse. Who's Jesse? A nobody. He's only famous because of David. And that's the thing. David came from, from humble roots, humble beginnings, but he is the man raised on high. How was he raised on high? We read, he is the anointed of the God of Jacob the sweet psalmist of Israel. To be anointed it establishes a godly office, particularly that of the king. But not just that of a king, but he's also a prophet, composing the, the words, the songs that became the prayers of the nation. And that's who David is. So he continues in verses 2 to the beginning of verse 3. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. And then he continues on with his oracle to verse 7. We'll be looking at this uh, oracle from the second part of verse 3 to the part of verse 7 in three parts. And you can follow this in your outline provided. The first is the principal ideal. That's principle with ending with an L-E, the, the rule, the guideline of an ideal of the king. The second is the principle, spelt with an A-L, principle, main, reality of God that undergirds the king. But the third part will be the perspective of human futility. And I hope for us, our main takeaway today would be that our whole lives should be shaped 
by the reality of God's worth and the perspective of our unworthiness. So let's look into the principal ideal of a king revealed in the next part of verse 3. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. Now, David ruled 3,000 years ago in the ancient Near East where kings had absolute power. There are still kings today, but none of them rule with absolute power, isn't it? And that's a good thing. But here, even David 3,000 years ago said, the king needs to rule justly because the position is exalted. What do I mean here? When we think about it, it makes sense because the possible destruction and harm that can be caused scales with the power and the potential. Uh, For example, if a child gets greedy, takes an extra sweet, maybe they get grounded or, you know, get punished, but that's about it. When someone, in their, an adult, in their career, gets greedy, maybe an accountant gets greedy, embezzles some funds, they go to jail, right? They get de-charted, de- de- right? They get delisted. If a judge gets greedy, justice becomes miscarried, corruption happens, and the, people, the sufferings of the people is amplified. The higher you go, the bigger the devastation. But this is not just true of kings, but it's true for you and me as well, isn't it? Because it's bad news when any one human being, man or woman, becomes a sole authority in their life. Think about this. If no one can tell you that you're wrong, no one can speak into your life, no one can say, brother, sister, this is wrong. Maybe you should reconsider this. No. And so often we we see people get defensive. How dare you say I'm wrong? I won't listen to you. And that's the danger, friends, where it's really unhealthy and destructive to get to that place where no one can correct you. We all need to be held accountable. For myself, I'm held accountable uh, by my superiors, by the congregation. But this is uh, true for all of us. And when we come back to this point, it's doubly true for the king. Why? Because the king needs to realize that he is accountable to God, that there is a higher king above him. Now, if the king does this, if the king rules justly in the fear of God, and the effects are seen in verse 4, the king dawns on his people like the morning light, like a sun shining on a cloudless morning. Isn't that nice? It's a picture of the morning sun that comes driving away the darkness, the cold of the night, and it brings the warmth of the morning. Anyone here enjoys morning walks? Yes, in the morning sun, get your vitamin D, it's nourishing, life-giving, and that is the image of a good king. And the second image here is that of rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. Two weeks ago in chapter 21, we saw how when God withheld the rain, famine beset the land. Because Israel uniquely had no uh, water system, natural water systems, it relied on rain for its agriculture to happen. So you see here, rain makes possible the rhythms of life in agricultural Israel. So too, a good king makes possible what is possible for for subjects to thrive, for life to go on, for, uh, for, for, for rule to happen without corruption, without greed. To, to, for justice and equity to be given to all people. That is the ideal. 
when the king rules in fear of God. So this ideal points us to the reality behind this. Why is this ideal possible? And that is the principal reality of God that undergirds the rule of the king in verse 5. And that's what we see David saying. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made me an everlasting covenant and ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and desire? Now we know that David's rule is not perfect. But we must admit it got pretty close. That so much so that when we look back at the history of Israel, King David's reign is still acknowledged as the beginning of the golden age of Israel. Now, the reason that David's rule was so successful wasn't solely by his effort. We see here revealed, it was God's covenant with David. It was God that made him secure. It was God that caused David's kingdom to prosper. And this is pointing back to the covenant God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The brief story here is that David, having secured his kingdom, he told God, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple. And God says to David, you want to build me a temple? That's cute. Okay, God didn't say that, right? But I'll build you a house. Don't, I won't let you build me a house. I'll build you a house. I'll establish your house forever. And that's our psalm reading today, that he established his throne through all generations. Now, again, why did God do so? Not for David's sake alone but because there's a deeper reality that God wanted to bring the goodness of the ideal king, this goodness of this rule, not just to one throne and one point of time in one geographical space in the Middle East, but God wanted to expand that goodness, that ideal to all of humanity through all of time. And this was not done through David's earthly throne. When we look forward in the narrative of David's descendants, they failed miserably. They were not good kings that ruled justly in the fear of God. They turned away, they sinned, and they ended in destruction of the kingdom. The kingdom was destroyed. It didn't last. But that the fulfillment of this ideal, this king, this, this covenant, was in David's greatest descendant, Jesus. You see, Jesus, though himself the eternal son of God, was born into humanity, came to humanity, was born in the line of David. That Jesus coming to us revealed who God is. God is a king who is not aloof and detached and high above and far away, but God is a king who draws near in love. That Jesus came 2,000 years ago not to rule or to dominate, but he came to bring us, all of us, back to God back to the ideal, the goodness that God wants to give. That Jesus needed to do so because of the perspective of the human condition that we'll see in verses 6 and 7. In verses 6 and 7, David gives the contrast. If the goodness of one who fears God is like the sun and the rain, the one who rejects God are like thorns that are thrown away in verse 6. Now, why? Because if God is the source of life, of goodness, when men cut themselves off from God. When men rebel and reject God, they are like thorns. It's like a flower that when you cut it off the stem, it, looks, it still looks good, but it will wither, it will dry, and it will die. Therefore, the Bible calls them worthless men, only fit to be, take, to be thrown away. And it continues on to say that they cannot be taken with the hand. 
What do they mean? Thorns will prevent themselves from being thrown away by being prickly, will harm them. And this is shown that, that sin, that rebellion against God, actually is, it corrupts. It harms all those who could draw near it, the innocence around it. And in a way, we see this with David's own life. In his adultery with Bathsheba in chapter 11, I, uh, when I preached this passage, I said it's one night of passion, but it led to years and years of suffering, not just in David's house, but it led to civil war and the suffering of his people for years to come. That is the devastating effects of sin. It's a thorn. But here in verse 7, it says, although it can't be touched with the hand, it will still be destroyed. The man who touches them will arm with iron and with spear. Although the thorn tries to prevent itself from being thrown away by being prickly, the man will come with iron and with spear, will take it, and will be utterly consumed with the fire, will throw it in the fire where it will be burned. Fire represents God's wrath towards sin and rebellion. It represents God's righteous desire to destroy all that corrupts his good creation. Because sin will always spread, sin will always corrupt and harm the innocence around it. And God is rightfully seeking to destroy this. What's the problem then? All of us are affected by sin. All of us have sinned. We are all worthless, good for nothing. But that's not because there's nothing good in us. But the, we need the perspective that apart from God, when we turn away from God, apart from God, any good that humanity can come up with won't last. It won't last. It will not endure. And not just that, any good, charitable works that we try to do as human beings, apart from God, will be corrupted by our own sin, by our own selfishness. That we do good so that people may think good of us. We do good so that we'll feel good about ourselves. It's inherently selfish. And that's why the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 64 verse 6, describes it as such. Because of our sin, Isaiah says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. That our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Here, the ESV is being very polite. It's actually a menstrual rag. This cloth, this menstrual rag cannot clean anything. So too, our righteous deeds cannot clean us. Friends, no amount of good that you do in this life will be able to make up for the wrongs that we've done. Wrongs to other human beings, to the faceless people that you meet on the road that maybe cut you in traffic, to the faceless people maybe you meet online in the comment sections that you hate with a passion, to the people that you actually know in your family, in your life, people that you've hurt by your selfishness. And not just wrongs to other humans, but wrongs we have done to God. Because if it is true that God is the King of kings, worthy of all honour and glory, we have not honoured him. We have put other things above him, haven't we? In fact, we have even actively dishonoured him by disregarding him, treating him as if he didn't exist. But that perspective explains, friends, why Jesus had to come. That he came to bear the weight of humanity's sin that he took on himself the condemnation, the shame, the guilt, and the entirety of God's wrath. That he took all of this, what we deserve, in his own body and nailed it on the cross. And the Bible calls us to have faith 
in Him, to trust in Him, to, to go to Him and say, Jesus, I believe that that was for me, that you died for me. But when that happens, when we put our trust in Christ, God unites us, unites our failings, our sins to Christ's death, fully absorbing our punishments so that we, have, we are no longer punished, that God's wrath has been fully absorbed and before God, we are not condemned, but rather, because we are with Christ, in Christ, God sees us as holy, blameless, and honoured. Not because we are, or we deserve it, but because that's Christ's righteousness that we've, we have with his, by faith. And by faith, we have been united with Christ's resurrection, and we are united with Christ when he comes in glory. Friends, with that perspective in mind, our whole lives need to be shaped by this reality of God's worth and our unworthiness. We bring nothing to the table in this equation, friends. We need to be trusting in Christ, that Christ brings us back to the ideal. He brings us back to God's perfect rule under God's perfect king with Christ as our king that we will wait the day when our King comes back, that this world full of sickness and suffering and war will be burned with the fire, will be destroyed completely, not to exist anymore, that God will make everything new, perfect, without sin. That This is not just something in the distant future, friends, but it's something we ought to be shaping our lives and our decisions today. Don't be living for your career. Be living for this reality, that the things of this world will be destroyed by fire, that the only thing that lasts is Christ's kingdom. Now, you may be thinking, you're only at verse 7, Tim, and you have 39, 32 more verses to go, and you're 17 minutes into your sermon. Don't worry. We've looked at David's last words. In the next bit, we're looking at David's legacy of his mighty men. All right? Now, I won't be reading through all the exploits of every single name here. Uh, I'll be taking it as a whole category and withdrawing uh, three main lessons in the same categories as we looked at just now. The principal ideal, the principal reality, and the perspective. All right, we'll be drawing through those three things as well. Now, when it comes to David's mighty men, in our narrative so far, we've heard them referenced to when David's in trouble, when he's on the run from Saul, we have David and his mighty men. That David didn't do so alone. In fact, two weeks ago, again, looking back, we saw David, when David himself couldn't overcome a giant, we have four giants and four mighty men, and each of them respectively slayed a giant. That David's mighty men are valiant, and we dive deeply into their greatness in this part of the passage. Let's look first at the ideal. When we scan through the whole part, section from verse 8 to verse 39, we notice um, something odd here. Firstly, we're told that there's a hierarchy. There's um, about 30 plus names, but of these 30 plus names, there are the three. You can think of three with a capital T, right? It's like a title in the office. Uh, there are Joseph Bashabeth, that's Eliezer son of Dodo, and Shammah son of Agi the Herodite. The weird thing is, if they're so great, why is this the first time we're hearing of them throughout the entire 1 and 2 Samuel? Haven't you wondered? I did, right? What's going on? In fact, when we look down in verse 18, we start to then only we start to recognize the names mentioned there. Abishai, brother of Joab. Yes, we know him. We've heard of him. Uh, we look at Benaiah. Yes, we heard of him in earlier chapters. What's going on here? 
The ideal of the, prince, of the mighty man here is this. The greatness of the lesser serves to magnify the greater. The greatness of the lesser serves to magnify the greater. Let me explain it this way. For example, you meet this uh, very big, strong fella, uh, a big muscle-bound fella, and he, before you, he takes a steel bar and he bends it in half. And you're like, whoa, you're strong. And he tells you, oh, no, 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 wait till you meet my, my older brother who always beats me in strength competitions. Now, up to this point, you have not met this fella's brother, but you have an idea of how scary strong this person probably is, right? And this is exactly what's going on here, that the greatness of the 30 that, that we know, that we've been introduced to, that we hear of their exploits, serves to magnify the greatness of the three, and the greatness of the three serves to magnify the greatness of their king, David. Now, for us, If the ideal of the king is to rule in the fear of God, the ideal of the follower, the mighty man, is to be great so that their king gets the glory. Do you see where I'm going here? As we seek to serve King Jesus, our ideal is to be giving of our best, doing our best so that he gets the glory. Friends, when we do ministry here at St. Mary's, um, as much as we love Andrew, our dean, lovely man, we respect him, but we are not about him. The glory doesn't go to him. As much as we say that the cathedral is the jewel of the diocese and it is a beautiful building that we thank God for the resources to uh, help refurbish, we are not about this building. We are not about these things, friends, because what we are about is we are about our king. We are about his message. We're about King Jesus, and we're about his gospel. And that's what we should be pointing our lives towards. And that ideal, friends, leads us to this reality of this mighty man. In verses 10 and 12, it saw that they had military victory, but it is the Lord who gave them this victory. Now, Last week, when Andrew was going with us through 2 Samuel 22, he explained that military victory is given by God, that David saw his military might as enabled by God. Now, and as Andrew explained last week, that this was David's world. That was the world that he lived in, that the king had to uh, uh, conquer over enemies militarily, right? That this described much of David's life. So even as David put his trust in God, he drew his strength to fight from God. He acknowledged that it is God who enabled him and that it is God who vindicated him by giving him military victory. But friends, that's not you and I today. I don't think any of us go to battle, fight for our lives on a daily basis with sword and spear, right? But even though we don't face a military um, milieu, we need to put our trust in God likewise. As we face challenges, we need to draw strength from God through his promises as we seek to live for him. And we need to acknowledge that we live this life of faith only by his grace. And that it is only in choosing to live for him, choosing to live for his eternal kingdom, that we'll be vindicated when he comes again. And that will be where our victory is. There's one more bit here about the reality that's looked at, that can be explained in verses 13 to 17 of this passage. There's a story here that maybe you can look to, 2 Samuel chapter, 13, uh, chapter 12, 23, verse 13. Here we have a story of these uh, three men, 
There's three of the 30. We don't know who they are. But somehow it's at the time when there's a military campaign. David's still on the run. He's in the caves. And the Philistines are encamped where David's hometown, Bethlehem, is. And David mentions longingly, I wish I could have a drink of water from the well that I grew up with in Bethlehem. And these three men who are so devoted to David hear their king's request. And they, here's the thing, they could have covertly did a night operation and snuck in, took the water anchor. No, they went through the front door. They barged through the Philistine lines. They fought their way in, went to the well, took water and fought their way back out. Part of me wonders, if three guys could do that, why are they still fighting this war? You know? But that's the story. Uh, and he brings it, they bring this water back to David. Their goal is not to defeat the Philistines. Their goal is to give their king the water he desires. And here's one bit that puzzled me. What does David do? He doesn't drink it. He pours it on the floor. And I'll, when I was first reading it, I was horrified. I'm like, David, don't you appreciate the, what your men did for you? It's so ungrateful. But here's the thing. When you look at verse 16, he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. And verse 17, he says, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this, that I should drink the blood of this man. Because David realized he is not worthy of such devotion and honor. The only one worthy of such devotion and honor is God. And rightly, David gave glory to God. This, this best, this offering that people gave sacrificially, David ascribed it and gave it to God in worship. Friends, what do we do with the best that God gives us? When God blesses us, do we go, thanks God, keep it coming? <laughs> or do we take a pause and realize, God, you've given me so much. How can I be giving this blessing for your glory, pouring it out unto you in worship? Friends, remember, God is the principal reality he, he is the king of kings to whom even kings must answer to. He is the one that enables us in our efforts, our strivings, your dealings in your vocation. God enables you. He deserves our best. But we come to the last bit and we need to have a bit of perspective as we come before God. The last point, the perspective of human fertility. Two things to note here, okay? The first thing, if you took the trouble to count the names, okay, you don't have to, right? I took the trouble, right? In verses 34 to 39, in the 30, they're not 30 names, they're 33 names. When you take that together with the three that were mentioned earlier, that's 36. But when you look at the end, what does it say? 37 in all. Who's missing? There's one notable omission from this whole list, and that's Joab. We hear him mention Abishai is the brother of Joab. Uh, one of Joab's, uh, one of the, the 30 is Joab's shield bearer. But Joab, the man himself, is not listed here. His name is stricken off the record. What does this tell us? That great though Joab has, his works were, that we know in the narrative, he is stricken from the record because, if you remember, when we were looking at chapter 20 way earlier, as Pastor Andy was preaching on chapter 20, he told us, that he revealed that Joab was not about David. He was not about Yahweh, God. Joab was about his own agenda. And as he served his own agenda, 
he came to an end of himself. Friends, if we only live for our agenda, for our life, for whatever we see right now, our careers, even our family, if we just live for that, we too will be stricken off from history and be forgotten. The second warning is this. When we look at the valor of the mighty men, we're told that they're brave, that they're loyal, that they're faithful, that they're devoted. And all this serves to point to one thing when we cut into the last name in that list, Uriah the Hittite. Instantly, if you've been following our story, you're pointed back to chapter 11. That it is this same faithful, loyal, devoted man whom David committed adultery with his wife and murdered him to cover up his sin. That the greatness of the mighty man serves to highlight the failure of the human king. And what does this do for us? It tells us, friends, don't trust, put your trust in human endeavors. Don't put your trust in human king or kingdoms. Don't look here. It points us that we need to be trusting in the heavenly king, bringing about the heavenly kingdom when Jesus returns. And this was epitomized in the life of Thomas Kramer. Archbishop Thomas Kramer was integral to the English Reformation. As King Hen under King Henry VIII and subsequently under Hen King Henry's son, King Edward VI, that Thomas Kramer wrote the, the prayer book and it was instrumental in the reforms in England. But in 1553, when Queen Mary I, known as Bloody Mary, began her work of undoing the Protestant Reformation in England, she imprisoned Craner, and she burned his colleagues, Bishops Latimer and Ridley, at the stake right in front of him. And she kept uh, Kramer in prison, and under constant pressure, Archbishop Thomas Kramer broke. He signed a series of five signed statements saying that the Catholic Church is right, the Pope is right, I was wrong. And his sixth and final recantation was meant to be preached on, uh, I think, February of 1556 in a public sermon. But as he was giving the address at the last bit of his address, he deviated from the script. He denied the Pope. He withdrew his recantations. And he held fast. He turned back to the gospel. He said, this hand that signed the confessions, this hand, this unworthy hand has offended God. And therefore, this hand will be burnt first. He did that knowing that that would cost him his life. And yes, he was immediately taken to be executed. And as he was burned at the stake, he did. He hung out his hand to be burnt first, unwavering, unsh unshouting, and later on, he was consumed. And before he died, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then he died. Friends, Thomas Kramer's whole life was shaped by the reality of who God is, his worth, God's worth, and his own unworthiness. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord, would you like to find out what it means to be living for someone worth dying for? God is worthy of all our devotion. He is the King of kings, and yet he demonstrated his love for you and for me by sending Jesus to die for us, that we may love him and live for him.
even though we don't deserve it. Would you put your trust in him today? But for those of us who have, who have trusted in Jesus, have believed in him, let us learn from uh, Archbishop Kramer that he did not allow his failures to define him, to be his end. He repented and gave it back to God. Like David, later on, faithful kings will be known that they are after David's heart because he's defined by his faithfulness, not by his failure. Friends, our lives, our Christian lives should be shaped by a turning to God because he is worth it and turning away from all that is worthless and futile in this world. So friends, if you're still holding on to something, if you're holding on too tightly to this world, let go. If you're holding on to something that is dishonoring, that is grieving the Holy Spirit, please, it's not too late. Let go. Turn away from it and turn to God. You don't have to let your failures before God define you. Turn to Him because He knows and He's waiting for you to come back anyway. You're not hiding from Him. And we can only do so with His help. So let's pray. Father, we thank you because you are worthy. You are glorious. You are majestic. And you love us. We thank you for how you've demonstrated that love to us when we were so uh, unworthy, when we were your enemies. You sent your only son to die for us. Help us to be living, shaping our whole lives in light of who you are and what you've done for us. And we can only do so with your help. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.